Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. With new technology, you sort of go a step backwards as you move forwards. That's, I think, what's confronting you now, as you're seeing some of the steps backwards that are ultimately going to be enablers for new experiences. Virtual reality was poised to transform entertainment. It was once billed as the future of technology, and yet we've not seen that promise materialise. It still feels, well, a bit fringe. And because of this, some argue that it will never take off, that the world simply doesn't need VR to be mainstream. But are they right? Since the first VR experiments 20 years ago, the technology has certainly come a long way. And it's actively being used in many unique ways, from healthcare to retail, from conferences and fitness, and even by law enforcement. There's clearly an appetite for it, but it's not as large scale as expected. Perhaps we're waiting for a tipping point, that moment when something groundbreaking comes along and suddenly everybody piles in, as has been promised by the metaverse. Zilla Watson is a London-based consultant on VR and immersive content. Previously, she had a long career with the BBC as a producer, digital strategist, and most recently as the head of the VR hub. I met her, thankfully, through Alexander Whitley, a previous guest of the show from Series 5, and I am delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. A Future Unknown When I first went to an internet cafe in the 1990s, I said, trust me, this will never catch on. The technology was nascent. It was, frankly, rubbish. It was hard to see how it could ever make life easier. But of course, the tech, as tech does, evolved. And those early days were an essential part of the roadmap that has led us to what we now have. But has VR promised too much for too long? Will people have clocked out by the time the technology has stepped out of its infancy? Rory Sutherland touched on this concept in series one of the podcast when he spoke about the early days of video conferencing. The interesting thing that occurred to me with Zoom and video conferencing is that it had a problem because it came free and crap in the fairly early days of the internet. And the problem was that when it was novel, it was crap. And by the time it stopped being crap, it was no longer novel. So by the time Zoom actually got good, most of your colleagues, if you suggested, let's do a video conference, their memory of video conference was a series of botched Skype calls in the, you know, in the early 2000s, where 20% of the time on the meeting was spent going, Dave, you're on mute. So there is a case where there are categories which undeservedly die because something similar failed beforehand. I have no idea where VR and the metaverse will take us. The unknowns outweigh the knowns by a considerable margin. But for Zilla Watson, that's what makes it exciting. I just think back to that convergence time when we were told we had these crap computers. This is before Windows. And we were told that one day you'd be able to watch television on a computer, let alone be able to watch it on your phone. I still remember even at primary school having these sort of conversations about, you know, those very, very early 
telephones where you actually could see pictures and and uh, sort of saying oh it'd be absolutely terrible if you just got out of the bath or something and you sort of think i mean that is nonsensical now so so yeah i mean i think this is, it is a very similar time we've got a lot of technology converging we don't know some of it's very emerging some of it's all you know all the sort of web three side blockchain and everything else how that all fits together and how that all um works with the sort of amazing immersive technology that can take you somewhere else and give you a sense of presence somewhere else put you inside a story and all the other things that I've looked at I think it's quite early it's quite early to say and and anyone who thinks they've got the answers probably you should you should mistrust wildly (laughs) you know anything can happen there are firms falling over themselves to to embrace this use of technology and the convergence that you talk about whether that be virtual reality, augmented reality, AI, all of these things. And the notion of living your life as an avatar in the virtual world is both bizarre and interesting and appealing all all at the same time. I wonder why have we ended up here? And I I don't really know where we're going, but what what problem is this trying to solve? Or are we simply innovating for the sake of innovation? I think we we do see it as a continuum of what you were able to achieve in early computing with with terrible graphics or you know the early days of you know black and white tv through to color tv through to 4k and amazing sound bars and things like that so whichever way whichever side you come from when you come from the sort of film and tv and media world or from the computing world it's a continuum where stuff becomes more 3d where it becomes more a world you step into and a world that feels less mediated by a screen but as always with these things it's a bit of with new technology you sort of go a step backwards as you move forwards and so that's that's the thing about um some of the vr things that the level of given that we're used to these amazing tv screens with this these high fidelity pictures some of the graphics that you can render out in vr often look a bit um basic compared with that so you've got you've got that going on and you're that's i think what's what's confronting you now is you're seeing some of the step back steps backwards that are ultimately going to be enablers for for new experiences and things Um, and what i'd say about the you know that's sort of are we solving a problem well if you do i mean i i haven't done it in in full vr but then the new oculus quest pro headset people who have tried to attend a virtual meeting using that i've done it in different ways you really people have really said they felt like they were together in a different place the experiences i would point people to to get a real sense of where the technology can take them and where, where it's so cool is often in exhibition spaces. There's a absolutely amazing Notre Dame experience in Paris at the moment. And if you want a sense of where VR can take you on a tour of the cathedral, past and present, back through to medieval times when they have carpenters working on the forest. I'm not, as I walked through it, I could smell sawdust. It wasn't there. It was my brain filling in those gaps. But I also, I was doing it with a, a friend and you know, it was, it was a group experience that you felt like you were somewhere together. And and that's where you've got to go to see how brilliant it could be and how it really will take us, enable us to do things we just can't do at the moment. With your filmmaking hat on, how do you know when a story is right to use this this technology and, and this and embrace this level of storytelling? Because presumably it doesn't work for everything. It isn't the same as conventional filmmaking. Do you have a do you have an inherent sense as to what lends itself naturally to this sort of technology in terms of storytelling? 
Oh, well, absolutely. Well, I ran a team at the BBC and and our, you know, our job was to find where VR could add value, which included understanding what stories it could add value to. Because our first thing we'd say to people is if you can tell the story better on TV, don't even bother with VR. And, and the first thing I would look for is, you know, if a story relies heavily on close-ups for emotional expression or for showing some kind of plot thing of what's happened, I'd say that doesn't work in VR because what VR is doing is giving you a sense of presence in a place. And you have to just, the first thing I'd say to do is, you know, why why is being there going to help you understand this situation better? And presence is the thing in VR that was established years ago with, with you know, really ropey graphics with things like plank experiments where people in VR asked to walk along a, a plank of wood over a void and it's absolutely terrifying. Your brain knows it's not real but thinks it is real and so you react in that way. So sense of presence, does, does understanding the scale of a situation or exploring it spatially help you understand that story? In terms of scripting and things like that, you know, at the moment, you're thrown straight into a place in VR. You put that headset on and you've been taken somewhere. So I mean, for example, the way in which you might establish TV characters in a TV drama is very different in VR. And we're still we're still working out the rules for that. But, you know, complex um, getting to know a character and the way you might do that in a TV drama really, really doesn't work. So when we um, worked on a, um, a Doctor Who VR experience with a company called pa Passion Animation, we very much conceived it as, um, I mean, essentially a one act theatrical play. And that is definitely what I recommend to people is you might come to the same answers as TV and film, but go back to theatre to understand the problem and make the story work in a space first. And, and that's often your way to understanding the solutions. You sort of need to go back to the sort of original dramatic form to then work out, right, how would we do that? And some of the solutions might be exactly the same as in a film, and some might be very different. I read about a project that put you inside the cockpit of a Lancaster bomber above the skies of Berlin to give you a sense as to what that conflict and what that situation might have, have been like. Again, that sounds both terrifying and fascinating in equal measure. Is it designed to give you much more than a conventional story would? Is it designed to put you inside and make you feel what that person was feeling? Yeah, well, that's a classic one where you were inside the plane as it you know, it takes off in the, the UK and flies over France and is shot at and eventually makes it to Berlin and, and back. But that story is driven by the most incredible radio archive of a BBC reporter who was embedded on that plane with the sound recordist. So, I mean, that one, you really are, it, it, you know, it has a, a deep authenticity to it because you are bringing it alive through the, the sense of, of being there. But of course, also, so you've got the visuals of being in the cockpit and seeing what's happening and, and restoring that as faithfully as we could. But you've also got some sound design to help take you take you there and be part of it. And, you know, it's very, very poignant and definitely gives you a sense of, of what it was like for that, that crew on that day in a greater sense that we could probably achieve through a film. I wonder if we could talk about information and and news and journalism to an extent as well and its relationship with technology there is a big battleground for the narrative there is a huge narrative around things like fake news i i wonder whether now more than ever trust and trusted brands and trusted sources of information will be critical 
when it comes to the future of news and journalism and truth, if you like, when you have so much opportunity out there to cloud the narrative. There are many examples that, that we could touch on, but how do you feel about the relationship between journalism and the metaverse, whatever we think that that needs. There's a huge battle for integrity and, and ethical reporting here, isn't there? Because the scope to get it wrong, either accidentally or deliberately, is just huge. Absolutely. And it just becomes, I mean, we've already seen all those issues via social media and other things. They're not new. But as you say, the possibilities for fake news with, with some of the new technologies that are coming along give it a sort of exponential <laughs> um, explosive feel. And I mean, that is also the fact that tools that in the past could only be done by a very expensive specialist visual effects studio, you know, ultimately can can now be done on people's phones. So yeah, there is a real, you know, there is a real issue. We dealt with it a lot in VR. I mean, actually, when you put a virtual reality headset on, one of the problems is, and this has been backed up by a big study that was done in, in Bristol, is that the audience kind of loses the sense of directorial intervention because you feel like you're there. You lose that sense of that you would with a film, oh, the way it was cut made me think that that was connected and it wasn't actually. So, so it becomes much harder to critique those moments and you know, understanding what is real and what is not when you've been placed straight in a situation like that is pretty hard. So it will come down to the integrity of who created the piece you're seeing and their credibility and absolutely holding on to those those trusted organizations that you know follow those processes and will be very transparent about it chapter two second life in june 2003 a groundbreaking virtual world went live taking the world by storm, Second Life is widely considered as the first example of the metaverse in action. Users created avatars of themselves that could interact with other avatars to socialise, chat, build and even shop using an in-game currency, the Linden dollar. Brands and firms were keen to have a presence inside Second Life and even the Royal Bank of Scotland set up a virtual bank. But despite our ever-growing fascination and connection with virtual worlds, popularity for Second Life dropped off dramatically over the years. Perhaps we expect more from VR these days. Zilla says we can still learn a lot from Second Life. It not only paved the way for what we have now, but it gave us an insight into what to expect from the future. Oh, I think it was definitely a paving stone. And at the sort of height of that early burst of loads of organisations getting into Second Life, I remember Radio One had its own island and I was working on a, a big journalism training project at the BBC. And we, we just sort of thought, this is where we should be doing training. We should be doing training in Second Life and giving people, you know, putting people into hard investigations where they have to make difficult investigative decisions. I mean, that is, you know, it would have been very, very different from what we could do now in a, a more 3D immersive world. But yeah, I definitely see it. And it established the sort of patterns of human behavior you expect in those sorts of worlds. So, so yes, I mean, I'm cynically sometimes now see when I see brands like Spotify launch their islands in Roblox and games like that, I think, so that just, you know, what's different, what's actually different at the point we've got to from doing that in, in Second Life? You know, the, the crypto thing and NFTs potentially changes all that in terms of mechanisms and things that will make all that easier. But yeah, it's just, it, I do see it as a continuum and the principles were established there. 
we've talked about entertainment and we've talked about journalism. There is, of course, a huge educational value to the metaverse and to technology and for the opportunities that it gives people as long as they have access to the technology. But it gives you things that no textbook could do. How much is the education sector interested in in where this might go? Because if you talked about you, you talked about the um the gallery in France, then that might allow children the opportunity to visit places, albeit virtually, that they would never necessarily be able to go in person. So there's a huge educational value to the metaverse, isn't there? Yeah. And I think this is without any question, we could transform parts of education it's absolutely brilliant for geography for history um maybe even visualizing some things in maths and there's a there's an amazing project i love that's been done by a professor of pharmacology at ucl where he's created he's a he does flow chemistry creating sort of 3d printed very complex chemicals and he's he's created his lab in vr and is both holding international conferences within it where people are able to look at complex molecules and have discussions but also i mean genuinely exactly what you said enabling things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise so he can um allow school children virtually to come to events at his lab and see it or he can allow first year undergraduates that would never allow be allowed to get their hands on tech like that to run virtual experiments so so a real enabler and i just think that's a beautiful example the issue is just around money the technology getting a bit better implementing it i think you know the case is absolutely made for the sort of things we'll be able to to do there in the education world but there's a lot of other lot of other things around business models and money that um, are required to really really get that going now but that's where i'd want to focus as uh you know for the for the uk really focus on some of these areas where we know the technology can have a, a, a transformative ability to improve things and focus on them because you know just we we can't do everything and that that's where i'd really focus attention on and healthcare too is the other big one absolutely we often ask the question is there an audience for this and i said earlier you know what problem are we trying to solve and very often real innovation, real game-changing innovation doesn't necessarily concern itself with whether the audience is out there because people, and Steve Jobs is a good example, is he created a vision that nobody else really knew was something that we were missing in our lives. And he was utterly convinced that things like the iPhone were the way forward. And if I think about people like my own parents, for example, who you know, I would never have said would be mobile phone carrying people. And, and now, of course, like everyone else, you know, we live on our phones and, and as do they. And, you know, and they have tablets and they're very tech savvy. And, and all of a sudden you, you wake up in a world in which we have created, we have become the audience. And we didn't know that we needed this. We didn't know it was missing in our lives. So often when people say, is there an audience out there? It's those sorts of people who are maybe in the way of innovation and true innovators will not worry about that because they're so certain that their product will eventually be needed by absolutely everybody that they don't worry about it. I wonder when you think about the future and you think about the metaverse, do you reflect on the fact that there is this creeping sense of actually this is now part of our lives. This is this is what we do and, and we don't know where it's going to end up. And actually it might be quite a fun ride. And if we don't want to get on, we can get off at any point. 
I think it's difficult at the moment because I don't think people necessarily at a, a general level have, have got enough of a taste of what it can offer to really see where it's going. I mean, that's why I've been really focused on taking virtual reality to libraries to do some really um, focused audience research, which we started when I was still at the BBC and we did a big trial in libraries. And that really got it beyond a sort of techie early adopter audience to people who'd never experienced it before and never expected to. And, you know, what it taught us about which stories worked and, and the sort of content people wanted is really powerful. So I think it's still at that, you know, there's a group of super, super tech enthusiast people who who are very, very excited about all this. Um, there's a lot of people who it's, it's not really connecting with at all yet. But what I would, you know, so my, I suppose my hope is some of these big location-based experiences and, you know, VR within museums and things like that, give people a taste of something good enough that they say, okay, I can see you can do really interesting things with that and just get, get things started. I suppose I'm less in favour of bad VR because I think the, it can put people off and you wouldn't do it again if it didn't offer you something that was pretty amazing. So so I'm for, you know, just gradually get people excited about it through some really, um, really showing what the technology can do now. Chapter three, lessons from theatre. Earlier, Zilla touched on the lessons traditional forms of media can teach us about how technological future and I think it's very important to reflect on this because new technology does not herald the end of the old often it's at the intersection of innovation and tradition that we find the things that really speak to audiences theatre has a long tradition of immersion whether that's simply watching a performance on stage or promenade theatre where you follow the actors around or the theatre of an experience like punch drunk or maybe even secret cinema. Theatre has set us on a path of immersion that in many ways is leading us into the metaverse and will continue to stay relevant throughout this transition. Yeah, and it's it's no surprise that both the Royal Shakespeare Company, who I advise a lot, and also the National Theatre too, are both really committed to developing work in this world, whether that is to augment the sort of things that they can do on traditional stages with amazing um, projected avatars, real time and things as the, as the Royal Shakespeare Company did for the te- production of The Tempest a few years ago, or, or whether it is developing different sorts of experiences that people might watch through um, a VR headset. There's, there's huge interest in the theatre world and, and a, you know, a really lively sense of innovation around it. And, I, I, you know, it, it, it will allow theatre to develop in, in new ways and offer a, a very, very different sorts of experiences for people. So it's, all, it's an exciting time of ex- experimentation. But I think what was interesting is when there was a sort of bit of a VR moment in 2015 when lots of organisations started working in it. I think at the time there was a sense that immersive theatre companies like Punch Drunk, where you walk around, had all the answers. And um, I no longer think, I don't think that is the case. I think, you know, there's, we are developing new forms of storytelling, but I I think actually really good writers and and scripting and dialogue and things like that from more traditional theatre also have their role in VR. And 
you know, different people, obviously different things are going to appeal to them, but not everybody. Some people still like a great story with a beginning, middle and ending. And so it's not all about just walking, walking around a room and exploring objects and little stories evolving. I mean, I find that can be a very dissatisfying experience personally. So I always encourage people when I'm sort of mentoring things to think about how an experience starts and ends and how you can bring a little bit of the emotional drama that you would get in a film or, or more traditional theatrical production into that because something gets a bit lost, I think, from just that that sort of sense of feeling that everything should be interactive and you should just be able to pick up things and discover the stories yourself. I'm so delighted that you say that because you're absolutely right. And, and often when I think about topics like this, I'm reminded of that brilliant line from Jurassic Park, which is your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And it would be very easy to bet the farm on the technology and forget completely that actually there needs to be a story in all of this. The technology is simply the medium through which the story is being told, but there needs to be a compelling underlying narrative. And I think that People like Punch Drunk work extremely hard at the underlying narrative. And of course, the audience can decide whether they wish to follow the main story, whether they wish to follow a character, an object, etc. But however you engage with the story, there has to be a story. And I think as writers, we often forget that, that, you know, just because we've got things like IMAX cinemas, or just because we've got things like gaming chairs that move and allow us to experience, there still needs to be something that you're interacting with. The technology isn't the story. Absolutely. And I've just been um, to the International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam, and I've so I've heard 20 ideas being pitched. And some of them, I just think this is just all about the technology. I'm not really sure why this, you know, these these traditional things that you would normally ask, like, what is the story? Why now? Why are you the right people to tell it? Um, the sort of questions you'd normally ask as a commissioner at those sorts of things often get forgotten because, but it's about AI. Well, <laughs> if that's, um, if that's really what it's about, maybe it needs, it needs another thing to take it to find the right story to illustrate it. So, so perhaps I would be, be seen as a little bit, well, traditional or old fashioned in that world, but that's my broadcast training about the fact that stories will in the end connect with bigger audiences. And there's a real danger that when, when we're dealing with experimental technology, which we haven't really worked out the rules for how it all works, that if you then do experimental narrative on top of that, that you get left with very little. There's a really wonderful VR director called Matthias Schelborg, who actually directed the Doctor Who VR experience I, I talked about. But his first VR experiences were, he did one called Jack, based on Jack and the Beanstalk, and one on Alice. And they are completely, um, you get drawn into the, the story. But when he talks about it, he says very deliberately that he chose familiar stories with familiar characters because the way he was going to mess with things, if you had to then introduce what was going on, as well, it would have been impossible. But by going with a story like Jack and the Beanstalk or Alice in Wonderland, where we've all got a sense of what the characters are. Um, so you start with something that people basically understand and then you subvert it. That's a lot easier than starting with a story that people haven't a clue what's going on. And that's that's the danger when you, you play around and experiment with narrative and experiment with technology at the same time that you end up leaving people very lost. <laughs> Yeah, and I and it goes back to what you said about the the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's a, there's a reason that that Shakespeare 
works and it's because the underlying stories work they are familiar they're great underlying stories and they're familiar and they make sense and they have narratives that we recognize so to extend those narratives and deliver them via the medium of technology makes perfect sense it's because the underlying story works not because the tech is available yeah i mean that's certainly where i i come from but there are plenty of there are plenty of people that you know do amazing things um and are able to really play around with narrative and and create very interesting experiences i think it's it's my broadcast background and focus on on big audiences that means i say perhaps what some people would say was a very safe <laughs> safe space that but that that's certainly where i where my values are in terms of the storytelling how democratic do you think the technology is because we hear a lot about big tech, you know, good firms that are now evil and, and power being concentrated in the hands of a small number of tech companies. Is that true or is that just a narrative that that we hear because that's the narrative that's getting reported? Do you think that technology, and I know you've made the point about accessibility of technology and affordability and all of that, but is this as democratic as it perhaps should be? No, no, I, I think there's real, real dangers there. And again, I think in terms of ultimately, you know, government grants and things going to this technology, I think there needs to be significant recognition of the digital divides that might be created with 5G plus immersive tech plus various other metaverse things. We've thought about it before with broadband, and that involved a sort of massive national effort to ensure that broadband wasn't just um, focused on big cities and got to rural areas, and it took years, but that's critical. Um, I suppose it's difficult at the moment because we don't know exactly where this is going to, to kick that off and really start it even with, with 5G. But I think all these, you know, there are precedents for that in the past. I mean, that's one of the things that's drawn me to work with libraries because instantly you can democratize the tech there. But we also have the technology and hardware is being developed by West Coast companies. And it's not like they're just developing hardware like a television. There is an operating system that goes with that, which, you know, is like a sort of closed shop, which we're all used to from iPhones and things. But that but that is there from the start for this. And that really makes it difficult potentially to distribute different forms of content on it. Competitors at the moment are based in um, China and Taiwan with similar issues and things. So it's it's really not easy at the moment. And so whether it's just buying a headset for your home use, or um, particularly if you're trying to buy them for an educational establishment or for medical use, all these issues about the headset versus the, the operating system and the store on it um, start to become really significant in terms of whether you can actually implement this, this technology. So for, for example, when we talked about education earlier, you know, this is one of the barriers to that, you know, who owns the store, how will you get the, get the content from it, and everything else. So there's a lot that needs to come into place before all these things can work and we can ensure that it gets used for the right things in the right places. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm delighted to hear that despite all of the confusion around what might happen in the future, despite all of the inherent problems, there are significant advantages for education, for healthcare, for increasing social interaction and mobility and, and on, on all of those things. I am delighted that underpinning all of that is the importance of story. And I think that as long as that is the focus, then bring on the metaverse and we'll, 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 yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, Zilla, what are you working on at the moment? So one of the medical focus 
development for VR. I mean, one of the one of the big ones is obviously training, where you can train people up to do surgery and and see scans through your magic glasses and things like that. So over time, that's all going to transform. But um, also, uh, you know, VR, and again, going back to the sense of storytelling and presence can be used in psychiatry and um, to help people with all sorts of things. So one, I um, teamed up with Katie Grayson, who I actually met in the TARDIS because we worked on the Doctor Who VR experience together. And we're developing and have tested with um, students at medical school in London, St. George's, a VR experience to um, help with anxiety around exams initially. And again, it absolutely relies on storytelling. We've worked with a, a clinical hypnosis expert called Ursula James, but it's taking you through a very clear story that's helping change your mindset and teach you the things you need to do to be calmer around exams. So, so the potential there for all sorts of, of beneficial things like that is huge. And we're starting to explore that properly now. Zilla Watson, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Zilla Watson for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Virtual reality isn't in direct competition with traditional mediums of entertainment. It's an expansion. As a writer, you don't have to think about incorporating new tech into everything you do in order to keep up. Traditional media is still better at telling certain kinds of stories, so VR isn't taking over anytime soon. Sometimes when you ask, is there an audience out there for what I'm making? The answer seems to be no, but that doesn't have to mean the end. It may be that people don't yet realise how badly they want what you're selling. If your idea is good enough, you will create the audience and they will buy into your vision. And finally, virtual reality will undoubtedly play an increasingly important role in how we tell stories in the future. But don't focus too much on the tech. It's only the facilitator. At the heart of every new innovation is the story we wish to tell. Make that your focus. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch with me directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. 